mental. <laughs> you, have, mental. you have ruined the word. Okay, here we go. You ready? Yep. Hey, welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. We are uh, glad to... <laughs> Take two. <laughs> hey, welcome yeah, to the Forge... <laughs> Hey, Sorry. welcome. <laughs> Stop, man. I'm trying to intro. Here we go. Hey, welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. Glad that you could join us another week. Uh, my name is Roland Smith, your host, and we have Terry Ishi in the great state of Texas. How's it going, Terry? Pretty good. Doing well? You're going to have to do faster than that. So was I not? Yo, so we do this. We do this every week. So you guys like like have to jump on it, okay? Like because we have like dead air. <laughs> I didn't think it was that long. Well, yeah. Am, I, am I not coming like, in? Hey, I'm Terry Ishii from Texas. Hey, how's it going? You know. Okay. Yeah. Hey, welcome to the Forge America Missional Podcast. My name is Roland Smith, your host, and in the great state of Texas, we have Terry Ishii. What's up, buddy? Hey, how's it going? Alan Bradford in Tennessee. It's good to be with you guys. Nice to see you guys. And the flood has stopped, right, in Tennessee? Yeah, the flood has stopped, but it's now 32 degrees and a bright blue sky out. All right. Well, great to have you guys and be with you again. Um, We are actually recording this um, on the first day of after Lent started, right? Um, And as... Uh, a bunch of kind of quasi evangelical non-denom types. Um, where, where, where? What is y'all's experience with Lent? Is this something you do? Is this something you know about? Is it just something on your clothes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bad. Uh, I was waiting for your laugh because it's a really bad no, Lent it's, joke, right? It's good. No, lots of Lent in that in that regard. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, well, one, I, I did not grow up. A, a follower of Jesus. And so um, I, it's, I had none, none of that kind of as a kid. And then when I did become a follower of Jesus, um, well, we did Easter, we talked about Easter, but we never did any sort of thing of Lent. And so it wasn't until just the last handful of years, as I've just looked at the idea and the practice uh, from a standpoint of spiritual formation and what it might do uh, in just in my own life. And so, but other than that, I have very little experience with it. Yeah, yeah mine, mine's the same. Uh, grew up going, I actually grew up not going to church, fought it all the time. Uh, my, my parents drugged me to church, you know, Christmas and Easter was about it and hated every second of it. But eventually Jesus got a hold of me in my teenage years and started to get into it. But I did, I went to a church that was, you know, non-denominational evangelical church. So nothing about Lent. But I, in the last uh, maybe eight to 10 years, we've really started to reclaim uh, the concept and, and the idea of it and saying, you know what, this whole church calendar thing is not, it's actually not too bad. I think as a, what, in Protestant evangelicals, we always made fun of it, but I, I, maybe there's a little bit, we threw the, the baby out with the bathwater. And so uh, the faith community I'm a part of, we have definitely entered into Lent and Advent. Uh, and in fact, what we're doing this year, we're entering into it um, by what we've decided to do is to say, what if for Lent this year, you decided to give up going fast? Um, the idea of just like, take it slow, take it easy. Because so much of our culture, so much of uh, really Western American society is go fast, you know, fill your time, do all these things, do all these things. And saying, well, what if you actually entered into some practices that 
took some time in these next 40 days. The way you do friendship, the way you do um, even, even your commute to work. Like what if you took public transportation? Don't try to rush to work, but took your time. The way you do uh, even your money. You know, like what if you did, what if you actually did cash and like wrote all your stuff down that, you know, your receipts as opposed to just all of it online. Um, just all these different ways of saying, let's just take this time. We're going to slow it down. Uh, and then what we've done uh, for the the 40 days of Lent for these really what, six uh, Sundays that we're in it, uh, we're going to look at the last seven days of Jesus. And just, yeah. if you notice in the gospels, like they kind of fly through Jesus's life and then they get to that last week and they just slow everything down. Like, especially John, exactly. John is like, yeah, that was our message kind of, Sunday. Yeah. It was yeah. Just, you just, gets, he gets to the chill hilltop, out. looks at Jerusalem and it's like, puts the brakes on, you know, yeah. at least yeah. Mark does the book of Mark does. Yeah. Yes, definitely. And, and John, I think is, I mean, I think like a third of the book of John, maybe even a little bit more is just that last week. Yeah. And so we're going to say, Hey, let's just take some time and enter into that last week well, and then uh, just kind of take it slow. And the concept we're kind of circling it around a little bit is this idea, and I'm not a music guy, but Roland, you can help me out. But the concept of adagio, yeah. which is, you know, it's kind of like, hey, take your time. And before, I did a little research, and before the advent of the metronome, right. adagio was a certain like um, beats per second based on how many, how you perceived a second. So it was kind of like, hey, slow it down. It's a relative, a relative second. It was, it was a relative <laughs> second because you know, before the metronome, before you had that, yeah, that definitive yeah. thing, it was like how you perceive it. That's how you do it. So I'd have a little note oh. at the top says, "You do this adagio. You slow this down." Yeah. And I like the concept saying, "Hey, as people uh, in your life, whatever it means to slow down, you do that. Like whatever, based on your perception." Just take it easy during life, like slow it down. Yeah, it, that's that's really cool. That connects with something I learned last night because we did um, we did an Ash Wednesday service um, at the church I'm part of, and uh, it's interesting because this is like this is an 80 year old American Baptist church that kind of left the the Baptist denomination and has slowly kind of been walking through non-denom land, not really evangelical, but kind of more in the middle or something. I don't know. And, uh, but this was the first Ash Wednesday service that this church has ever done. And um, one of the pastors kind of did opened it up. And, and I didn't realize that the word Lenten actually means to lengthen. Mm-hmm. And That's so good. that kind of fits with what you're talking about. And it fits with this last week of Jesus and um, how in, and even how the gospel writers, all of them kind of slow down. And, uh, you know, I think the, all of them are at least uh, 29% of the gospel is the last week of Jesus. And so uh, it really slows down and you kind of walk through that last week rather than just kind of flying through all these pictures of Jesus and people, you know, um, this service was incredible last night. It wasn't new for me. Um, the church I was at, uh, on staff at before, it was really cool because we were, you know, a basic kind of non-denominational church. Um, but the lead pastor hired an Episcopal priest as one of the pastors. Um, uh, he actually helped do community groups and that kind of stuff. Um, and it was awesome having a liturgical guy on the staff. And so whenever we did things like Advent or, um, or Lent or, you know, um, 
he would give us these perspectives um, and actually teach us kind of how to do it. And so we got to deep dive um, the years I was there. We did, we got to deep dive through these liturgical practices and rhythms. And I actually um, grew to really, really appreciate them. But last night we did, you know, we probably had of our thousand uh, people that attend the church. We probably had, um, you know, 350 or 400 there and, we had all these stations uh, set up, and we we actually burned, um, you know, sins and thing weight of life and things that people wanted to get rid of. We had this big barrel, and uh, they started burn, you know, writing on paper and burning these things uh, right in the middle of the worship center. Terry's been to our worship center, and so you know, and smoke just kind of started. It, you could start <laughs> smelling it. You could smell the ashes, yeah. right? It was Ash Wednesday. And uh, and we had like paintings where they could add to, add paint to. But then we had ash stations. And so we had our pastoral staff that got to say a blessing on people and, and actually, you know, make a mark uh, across on their forehead and um, and we just kind of did worship behind that and all during the service. And it was, it was unbelievably moving for people and, and I the, saw and visible the, tears and just, you know, like weights lifting off of people, you know, and real quick, it just had to ask. So in my head, the, the fire alarm didn't go off. There are no sprinklers, no smoke in the sanctuary and nothing, well, so nothing at, went off as a, as a worship leader of 28 years, I can tell you that I've learned to test everything before you do it. <laughs> like, don't just have a good idea and then just do yes. it during a service that you always test it. So we, we had tested it. Um, we hadn't tested it with that many pieces of paper, yeah. but, um, and it did get kind of smoky um, where you could really smell it, but yeah, it didn't set off any alarms or anything. And he, we, we have this guy, we have this building guy that, he's fantastic. And he built this out of this oil drum with the grate on top that kept any sparks from coming out. You could just drop the paper in there and you know, it was, so it was, it was really good. So is, so is there anything that you're giving up during these 40 days? Yeah. So that's a, that's a great question. And that, that was something uh, I was kind of wondering, you know, the question I always ask is what, what's the missional practitioner to do with these sorts of things on the calendar? So as, oh, yeah. as a missional sent one, um, what does Lenten look like for them? You know? And so is, yeah. is fasting something that you do? And um, I don't know if you guys saw Scott McKnight's post on Christianity, uh, Christianity today a couple of days ago, but basically he just slams the idea of fasting, typically how we yeah. do it in, in, yeah. the, in the West. And he, uh, you know, I love this, the quote from it says, fasting done to get something is faux fasting. Abstinence and fasting are not the same thing. So giving up chocolate for Lent is faux fasting. Yeah. Uh, and so he talks about the idea of, uh, you know, instead of seeing fasting as a, as a discipline we use to do or to practice in order to get something or to achieve something or, or you know, and that's, that's really how fasting has been kind of taught. In, in my experience, for the most part, is, oh, you fast until you get the answer. You fast until you come to a point of clarity or something like that. But uh, Scott, his whole perspective on fasting is, is, is very singular and very simple. 
uh, he, he asked the question, so how can you tell if you're fasting? The simple answer is, are you grieving yeah. or are you looking forward to something happening for you? And if the former is true, then it's fasting. And if it's the latter, it's faux fasting. So I thought that was yeah. fascinating. I, I've never heard, I've never heard fasting. Well, I mean, maybe I've heard it put that way, but I always thought fasting was calling out uh, like, so it was interesting when you said that I kind of got a little defensive because fasting for me has always been, has always been really good. Um, but it was more calling out <laughs> the idols of my own making. Right. And let's be honest, I like food. So the idol of my own gut, yeah. it's amazing. Like when you genuinely enter into, let's just say like a, like a, a typical fast, like if you fast the Jewish fast, you know, was it sun up to sundown or something like that, you know, sundown to sundown, if you do that, um, and then those those hunger pains start hitting. And as as an American who has always had access to food, it's like, oh, and you start to recognize, yeah, man, like so much of my orientation has been about me and about what I want. And so for me, it's been more calling out my own idols. That's how fasting has been. And I think that you're right. Like, oh, I'm not going to do chocolate or I'll give up Netflix or I'll yeah. give up. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's, that's cool. That may be a start, but I don't think it's the end. A couple of years ago, uh, one of the, one of the pastors on staff, uh, Molly, uh, she actually had, uh, she presented, you guys have heard the Daniel fast. Mm -mm. Have you ever looked up that one? Uh -uh. I mean, it is intense. And she challenged our whole community to do 40 days of the Daniel fast. And man, you talk about calling out idols because it's like, it, it's, you know, based on Daniel and the scripture. So it's like only like vegetables, broth. I mean, yeah. you're cutting tons of stuff, no sugar, no bread, no meat. You're going all Anything out. Anything considered rich food. Yeah. Yes. And, it, and, and you just, but you can see people like, Oh no, like that person's there on the Daniel fast and they're like, they're perpetually pissed <laughs> off right now. Cause it's <laughs> just like the Daniel. Fast. Oh yeah. And you know, you just have yeah. people like I tried, I did about a week and then I'm done, you know, yeah. but it, it does. It calls out kind of the idols that I've created. And let's be honest. I mean, food can be an idol. I say this, as the three of us are about ready to go to Orlando and on the docket for Orlando is hitting oh, a Brazilian no. steakhouse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah, I'm calling myself out on that one. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually trying to really eat good starting today through Sunday. Cause when we hit Orlando for the exponential conference, I know we're going to be eating way too much. So it's like <laughs> I'm kind of prepping myself, but yeah, we actually presented to our uh, community last night. Um, you know, that you may fast. I mean, that's something that uh, church culture has kind of engaged in. But we challenged people to focus on something, which I think kind of ties yeah. into your, your thing, Alan, of just slowing down. So it's like, you know, maybe you need to focus on a relationship or maybe you need to focus on something in the rhythm of your own life or whatever. So, so we actually had people think about what's one thing that you could like hold on to with handles over 40 days that you really lean into in a heavy way, you know? Yeah, that's really good. Actually, uh, that made me think I had a friend of mine, um, this last Sunday at our gathering, um, she talked about the concept of memento mori, which it's this Latin term and it means to remember your death, to actively remember you're going to die. So in Lent, the idea of remembering like, and getting into it. I mean, Lent is the lead up before resurrection or to resurrection, but before resurrection is the crucifixion. And so uh, this concept of actively remembering that you're going to die, not in a morbid way, not in a way that's like, Oh, poor me or whatever. And, um, and it's really stuck with me. And uh, the best part is she shared with me 
this nun's uh, Spotify playlist to help her enter into Memento Mori. So it's a nun, Teresa Alethea, I think I'm saying her name right. And she's got this Spotify playlist and it starts with, you know, John Foreman, the song Learning to Die. And then it goes to The Clash, Death is a Star. It has Johnny Cash. It has The Flaming Lips, Jars of Clay, Bone Thugs and Harmony. Sufjan. I mean, it's just this random playlist of all the songs. You just kind of imagine like this nun jamming out to this playlist. That's the best image in my head. Yeah. But I, what, that's, that's something we've had a, you know, in our community, uh, you know, really rough couple of years, you know, with, with sickness and death. And just a lot of things happening. You've you've got an uptick in the um, in suicides and, and the attempt in suicides just nationally. So it's kind of like thinking through all of that. Uh, but I actually remember, you know what? Someday I'm going to die. It is. It's not something to be scared of. It's not something to run from. It's also not something to be depressed by. But again, focusing on something. It's it's a weird thing to focus on. But as Christians, yeah. I mean, if you want to be, if you want to pop verses in, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Right. Things like that. Right. So that's, yeah, it's a concept. It's interesting. Yeah. I'm going to, you said, what was her name again? Teresa? Her name is uh, Teresa Alethea. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. I could send you guys the, the, the Spotify yeah. playlist. We could put it yeah, in and we'll the, put that. We'll notes. put that up on the website too, um, um, attached to the podcast. So that's really cool. I want to, I want to go listen to that. So. It'd be great. And I think, you know, looking, even looking at McKnight's uh, definition of, uh, in this article, though I may not agree with a, a lot of it, I, I think a lot of his argument is kind of semantics, right? I think he's, I think he's trying to get to the heart of why we fast, that fast should be a response out of, out of grief, right? We're, we're grieving the coming, the pending death uh, of our savior. And so, uh, and I think a lot of what you guys are hitting at is that idea. So as, as we look at people and, and kind of encourage them to live as sent ones, what does it look like to respond to the grief of life? Whether that is yeah. in this season where we're grieving the, the death of our Savior, um, but we hold to the hope of his resurrection. Um, but also as we walk alongside our neighbors and coworkers, like what are the, what are the areas that they are, they're grieving? Like where can we practice passion? Where can we mm-hmm. practice and join in in that suffering? And as we look at the life of Jesus, we see that as a, as a monumental practice of his mission, uh, this ability to practice passion with people, to come alongside, to suffer, to empathize, and, and to understand, not necessarily to alleviate or to even try to justify or any of that. I think simply just being, listening, understanding, and, and feeling that pain with people. And so I think even as we go uh, into this season, like how can we, as we embrace the grief of the death of our Savior, how do we grieve alongside the people around us? It can be a very, wow. pract- a very practical and very powerful practice. Dude, that was great. That was heavy. Wow, oh, it's good. It's really good. <laughs> I'm a heavy guy. Thanks, man. Very pastoral <laughs> of you. Yeah, it would, no, that was really good. That, I get, I get one of those pastoral moments a year. <laughs> I know. That's great insight. Well, I'm going to keep the recording and just play it over and over again, you know. Nice. Um, well, cool. Well, um, hey, we've got a great interview uh, today, and um, I wanted us to kind of set this up and give our own thoughts on this. Um, um, there's a, a pastor named Beth Wolf. Uh, who is at Clarksburg Church, and Beth is is also a hub leader in our Forge tribe. But I got to have a conversation with her um, that we recorded uh, as an interview, and I 
uh, I'm really a little bit fascinated with Beth's um, um, methodology and how she walks into community and curates community. And so I wanted to find out how she went into this older congregation and has d- been doing some intentional things to shift and uh, I would say massage the culture into a missional posture uh, because she does it. She's not doing it in a strategic way. She's doing it a lot of the way that you just, you described Terry, which is loving people and being present and developing community, but also saying, come on, let's, let's walk this missional path uh, together, which is that we also love our community and our neighborhood and our city. And so, um, you know, that's one of the things that uh, is our our passion here at Forge, which is to help churches um, kind of see and shift that culture. Um, have you guys, um, what, what have you guys recognized in trying to shift existing ecclesiologies um, into something that's more missional? I know there's a ton of hurdles, um, but what are some of the things that you've, yeah. Well, I remember one of the adages I heard a long time ago was it's easier to give birth to something than it is to raise it from the dead. Oh yeah. Um, And it's, that always proves true. Uh, But the trick is I do believe that we, we serve a God that does bring things back from the dead. Now here, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that like, if you don't shift your paradigm, your ecclesiology, that you are dead. I do believe that the spirit and the, you know, works in all churches, um, and, but we are in a cultural shift um, yeah. and, you know, we got to start recognizing that and saying, Hey, what got us here is not what's going to get us there. And so right. how do we look at that? But what I've seen is nine times out of 10, most people who come up with a new, um, you know, paradigm shift, if they're living out of a new paradigm shift or a new ecclesiology, it's mostly a church plant. It's somebody yeah. who said, you know what, I'm going to birth something as opposed to try to transition things. Yeah, what I but what I say a lot to people also is that because I probably because I'm living with a foot in both worlds is that you know the church we all believe is Jesus's church. It's not our church. And so even in church ecclesiology that's not perfect, we're actually joining trying to join God in uh proclaiming the kingdom. You know, we may just be doing it in a in a very non-missional way that's not working in our context anymore, but it's still not up to us to go blow it up, you know, or go dismantle it. And so um, I do think it's always easier to start something with fresh values and vision and all of that than it is to shift something. Uh, But we've actually found some success, you know, uh, at our, in our church community and kind of shifting some things uh, missionally. And so I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating topic and conversation that's, that, that is going to come to bear over the next few years because our ecclesiology that, that we've learned over decades and hundreds of years is really not working very well in America anymore. Yeah, can I give you, maybe give you another uh, picture uh, that I always think about when I think about this type of topic. And it was the idea of, um, you guys remember the worship wars? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Whenever those hit. Do I whatever, ever you remember know I mean? them? Yeah. yeah, I know. Okay, so the, the idea was, you know, you had, you know, your churches that did hymns, and then all of a sudden you have these new songs come in, and 
And everybody got so uptight about it, right? And you had churches yeah. who were trying to figure out how to incorporate, you know, you know, modern worship songs and you know, people are like, oh, no, it can only be hymns. Whatever. I'm so glad we're beyond that. And if you're not, if you're in a community that's not, we're praying for you. But <laughs> I still remember this one guy once and he was trying to figure out how to do it. It was a guy I worked with and in our community, it was very much a traditional community. And um, the worship pastor interviewed all these different people. Uh, different worship leaders about how to incorporate this transition, how to do this well. And one of the things I thought was fascinating is he interviewed a worship leader at another church, and this worship leader spent an entire year going to every group inside of their church, you know, Sunday school, small group, whatever it was, and basically would go to, let's say, the um, older ladies of the congregation, right? The older ladies and say, hey, did you know that, you know, when we sing this song, I know it's not your favorite, but when we sing this song, you're telling your grandson or you're telling little Timmy that you love him when you stand by him and sing this song with him. And then he, you know, she'd go to the, to the, to the kids, you know, the students, Hey, you know, when you sing that hymn, you're telling your grandma, grandma, Betty, whoever you're telling her, you love her yeah. uh, because you're going to stand next to her and sing this song with her. And I was like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's, I love that, you know, cause it's not just about, I mean, we have built church up to be so much about what I get out of it. Right. The whole sure. idea that church is a dispenser of religious goods and services that we just, we have created consumers. So when the consumer balks is something we, you know, want to change, it's like, Oh wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> but we are the yeah. ones that designed it that way. And so well, cause I love we the told idea. them forever that big Macs taste great. And then when we yes. say, well, big Macs don't taste great. It's like, well, wait a minute. That's what well, you told yeah. me for years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. But I love that idea of saying how, like, even like in something like this, is how do you do it in such a way? So a paradigm shift. I mean, I have great people in my life who have come to faith in what you would say a traditional paradigm. Uh, my home church, great church, you know, uh, traditional paradigm, great people who love Jesus and are doing amazing things. Um, but you know, if, if what we see coming is true, the future of the church, the way that the church is moving, what got us here will not get us there. Right. And so things are going to have to change and evolve. And so how do we actually look at this and say, Hey, you know what, when you are willing to change, you're telling little Timmy yeah. that you love him and you want him to know Jesus too. Sure. But then also on the other side, telling Timmy, Hey, you know what, when you come in and you're part of this and you do this, you're telling Grandma Bertha, whoever you're telling her, you love her as well. And yeah. and how do we actually end up doing that, and not just make it about me, uh, make it about the community as a whole, and what the mission of God is pushing us towards, the people that God is pushing us towards. Yeah, and I think another piece to this is <clears throat> the idea of you have to be committed to going slow because that is not a process that that you can't just flip it on. Uh, one of the things I, I'll tell a lot, I work with a lot of pastors and it's really a privilege to get to work with these guys who are, they're working in those established churches. You know, they've been around for a while. And uh, one of the churches that I'm working with, they, they're, they've got a hundred year history. And so they're trying to shift that. That's a big shift. And, you know, one of the things that I always remind them, you know, and I'm a, I'm a big guy and I love eating. And so uh, carnitas, you know, if, if you're, you know, you go to some places and you get a taco and it's like the meat is chewy and rubbery and you can tell that someone in the back did that really fast. They took a beautiful piece of meat and they rushed it. And you get what you get on, because of that. Uh, but when you go nice and slow and you take your time, when it's done and it's presented, 
it's going to be beautiful. And so I think I just remind church planters, pastors to be thinking that way that, yeah, it's easy to get it out and just get it out on the table quick. But what you put on the table is what you're going to get. And it's not always that delicious. It's always not that beautiful and tasty. But can we go slow? Can we put the energy to really take our time with these paradigm shifts, to really take our time with helping people understand this and begin to live a new way and tell a new narrative that in time, at the right time, something beautiful will come? Yeah, I actually, uh, the pastor of the church I just referenced, my home church, has been doing that. And he, I mean, it's his calling where he has been at this church, I think 20 plus years, and he's slowly moving the needle. And he has that long vision, that long game in his head where he's like, I'm not going to just pop things up on people. I'm going to, I'm going to take the long, the long game. And it's beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. But I think it goes back to calling because there are some people who are like, I don't have that in me. You know, I just don't like, I want to see this now. I need to do this now. But, but I think we need to honor and recognize both of them and say, you have people who are going to launch and start new things and that's beautiful. And you have people who are going to give their lives to slowly moving the needle and saying, what does it look like for this community to slowly change over time? And both need to be honored. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the things I think too is there that I've been thinking about as well is that, um, you know, we're about to go to exponential and hang out with, you know, 5,000 church leaders, uh, you know, for a week talking about things like this. Um, and then there's a lot of people that will be there presenting growth models and, you know, how to get more butts in the seat or up your giving and that kind of stuff. And, the danger is that when you start, when they walk into our out, our breakout sessions or our pre-conference or whatever, is that they look at it and say, oh, here's, here's another program that I could put on my church. Should I do that or should I do the other one? And in actuality, um, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about enough is that the paradigm shift is not just from attractional to missional but the paradigm shift is from institutional to relational. And, and one of the things that Beth, we talked about that she does so well is that she thinks about the people that she's leading, not the organization that she's shifting. Does, does that make sense? So if we yeah. were spending all our time saying, um, okay, we need to shift Pulpit Rock Church to be a missional church. Well, we have this institutional framework in our head. But if we say, okay, we're going to shift from institutional thinking to seeing people by their names, by the geographies they live in, and we're going to disciple them to love their neighborhood, then all of a sudden we've gone down from an institutional thing to a very relational tabletop experience. And that's what makes missional paradigms shifting work. I think if you, if you just try to shift an organization, it's a lot harder if you don't start seeing people as individuals in your community. Yeah, that's huge. And I I think that's what Hirsch, um, I mean, I think he spends so much time talking about that. That's the idea of, you know, institutionalism versus movement, right? I mean, relationship is movement. You know, one of the things we say frequently in Forge is that movement happens on the rails of relationships. And so if, if you are a pastor, you are a leader out there and you're listening to this and you're like, yes, yes, yes. How do I do this? You have to be committed to the relationships. You have to be, you have to be committed to movement thinking that is relational. 
And there is no shortcutting that. You can't think movement and then just keep doing the institutional things. And we're, this isn't a bag on institutions by any means. No. Because we realize every healthy movement becomes an institution and every healthy institution starts new movements. And right. so we, we want both. We really do. Um, but we have to embrace movement more in the West or God's going to, he'll figure out something else and we'll just be irrelevant. <laughs> Because it's going to get done, right? I mean, he's going to do it. Whether it's just a question, or will he use us? That's nice. That was a really good way to land it there, Terry. God's going to do something else, and we'll become irrelevant. And now moving on. <laughs> God bless you. We'll see you next week on Forge. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you're still around. <laughs> well, hey, that's a this is a good jumping off point, I think, for for this conversation. Is, with is it a good jumping off point? Well. <laughs> I don't know. Beth is going to save us. But yeah, we're going bring it home, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway. Um, yeah, I do think it is. This is a, it's a great conversation with Beth Wolf. And, um, and she, um, she talks about this and kind of her journey. And she's still in the journey. So she's walked into this, uh, this church community that was older in average age and older in tradition. And it um, seems like she's just having a great time building community, loving the city and um, kind of sprinkling missional practice and stuff into their culture and how they do things. And we talk a little bit about that. So I had a great conversation with her and we just love her in forge um, as well. And she's doing some great stuff. So let's, uh, let's just jump off and take a listen to her. All right, great. It's uh, fantastic to have Beth Wolf with us uh, on the podcast. And Beth is the lead pastor um, at Clarksburg Church in Maryland and has been there for about four years. And, uh, and you guys have been part of Forge as well, right? For what, one or two years you've had a hub going? Yeah, we've, yeah. Two years ago is when I first was exposed to Forge. Okay. How did that happen? Like, how did, so, had you on board? Yeah. So me and um, a coworker of mine who actually was doing like an internship fellows program, we had gone down to the exponential conference and uh, we signed up for the Forge like pre-con sort of thing. And once we got there, like I got super sick. So I wound up in the hotel oh, room. No puking like crazy and she went um because i like sent her on i said no you have to go you have to go get this information and i had never heard of forge before but while she was there she's texting me and she's saying beth they're talking about the things that you're talking about like they're they're using language like you're using and and i was just so glad because i had spent the previous two years at the church um trying to convince people that there was a different way to do church, that there was a different way that, that God was calling us to something different. And even her as my intern and, you know, on staff was still just like, Beth, that's not the way things work. Like that's yeah. not, yeah. that's not how you get people to come. And, and, uh, and so I was so relieved and excited and, and so was she to hear that there were, there were people like me out there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we have a little, um, I've talked about it before on the podcast, but we have a little group that gets together about every month. It's a bunch of missional practitioners and, um, for a happy hour or lunch or something. And we call it the freaks like me club, you know, <laughs> because there, there are people that kind of think different differently mm -hmm. about ecclesiology and, 
<clears throat> theology and mission and all those kinds of things. And so um, it's good to be in a tribe, right, of people yeah. so you're not walking alone. So uh, tell me a little bit about your journey to Clarksburg because, um, I mean, it, you're not new there, but you're, you also don't have a long time there. So how yeah. did you come to that church community? Yeah, so I was um, previously at a church out in Phoenix, um, and I originally was sort of the the middle school and high school pastor. So I was overseeing those ministries. And as I was working in that group, just really was burdened for um, and passionate about reaching high school students um, and realized that in order to really um, effectively integrate them into the mission that God was calling them to, we had to, we had to sort of do things a bit differently and we had to stop just holding on to them and expecting that, you know, we're just having fun until the real journey begins, but and start empowering them to do the work of the church and the mission of God, like as high school students. And so as a result, like realized that I really needed to sort of have a little bit of more connection and oversight to what was happening in children's ministry. So kind of took that over and was given the opportunity to oversee that and then uh, stepped into the college ministry also and oversaw what was happening there. But then we realized that like parents are huge in discipling kids. So go figure. So took over the parenting ministry and sort of tried to help support parents um, in how to disciple their children. And then after that, realized that we really didn't have very good small group leaders to lead and guide our high school students um, because the, the church was really just consumed with parents like or adults like, hey, just come and listen to us rather than helping mobilize them to mobilize others. Um, so it was at that point that I really realized that maybe God was um, leading me to step into a, a lead pastor role in order to sort of lead an entire church into um, – doing church a little bit differently. And so honestly, the, the beginning was driven by my passion for middle, for high school students. And to, I thought that I was going to step into leading a church um, so that they would be empowered and enabled to reach high school students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God had something so much bigger uh, in store right. than just that and led me to Clarksburg Church, which is a church restart um, that had absolutely no high school students. And so it was kind of this ironic thing. And I was just like, God, what are you doing? Like, but God had a really cool journey and transformational process for me. Um, Something bigger than I could have imagined. So that's been really neat. That's how I got here. So your, your high school jokes didn't work very well the first few Sundays. Oh oh my gosh. It was real bad. (laughs) Real bad. Yeah. 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 To, yeah. To switch uh, demographics. I, I honestly am still trying to work those things out. I have a group that I sort of test things on and I'm like, hey, is this yeah. funny? <laughs> <laughs> I do that with my kids and they say, no, it's not. <laughs> you know, so I'm the king of dad jokes. Well, hey, I know because uh, we've talked before. I know that you have this heartbeat for, you know, this thing that we call a missional church or incarnational community. Uh, it's the things that we talk about in Forge. Um, but you're in a kind of a structured, institutional, uh, yeah. historically institutional church community. Yeah. And so I thought it would be interesting for you and I to share share some stories because we've both been in that context and kind of shifting a church community to have more of a missional awareness um, and more intentionality in that discipleship. So um, could you talk a little bit about how you started shifting yeah. your community into that awareness? Yeah. So, uh, it's 
bumps and bruises like along the way. So I don't want to at all paint a picture that like the first start, you know, it was a string that I was pulling and I just kept pulling and it all happened. Like it didn't work that way. It was a lot of wandering around in the darkness and trying to figure out uh, where the handholds were. Um, And so as I tell the story, I just want to make sure that that is very clear that this was not an easy or painless journey and was really hard. So uh, the invitation to come out to this church out here in in Clarksburg, Maryland, um, really came as a result of uh, this this church meeting a pastor who could exegete the community. So sort of the history of this church is that it used to be a very thriving church that was located about 18 miles south of here, of where it is located now, um, right outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, And that church was thriving, um, and they had sort of outgrown their space. They didn't know what to do next, and so they chose to buy some property 18 miles north um, in an area that was not developed at all um, called Clarksburg. Um, And so in making that decision, the church split. So there was some decline there. Um, But then when they finally got their building built 18 miles north, um, they sort of started commuting back and forth. So nobody really moved into the neighborhood. Nobody paid any attention to what was happening locally. Um, They just started commuting back and forth, stayed where they lived before and drove the 18 miles, came to church on Sunday and went back. And after years and years of this happening, the, you know, the kids grew grew up and moved away and, and people died. And in the end, there were about 20 people left, a part of this congregation. And they were all in their late sixties, seventies, and sort of were kind of going bankrupt. Like there was no new people coming in and they looked at each other and kind of said, Hey, within the next 10 years, we're all going to be dead. This church is going to be dead. We need to do something. So they had actually um, spoken to a, um, sort of a, like a church counselor or whatever, Mm -hmm. somebody who counsels people on like what to do next with churches. Um, And they came up with a unique um, option of reaching out to a church that is located in Northern Virginia that happened to be started and planted by the same guy that had planted their church, um, a guy named Harvey Edge. And so they reached out to that other church and they said, hey, will you have us become sort of a satellite? Will you have us like merge with us, adopt us, whatever it is we can do. And so at the time, through lots of conversations, that larger church down in Northern Virginia said yes, um, and they began that process. And, you know, to some degree, I love the people that are in this church that made that decision because it was an incredibly selfless decision to say, I lay down what I view as church. Mm -hmm. I lay down my wants. I lay down my desires. I lay down my power and authority for the sake of the kingdom. And that's really what they were doing. Um, and, uh, and even though they were being extremely uh, selfless in that moment, it was still very hard for them. Um, so the other church sort of came in and the initial idea was that this would be a satellite campus of this larger church. Um, however, as they walked that out for about two years, they realized that uh, they had no idea. They needed somebody local. Let's just say that they they needed somebody local in order to, um, they they kind of had created a commuter staff and a Mm -hmm. commuter campus. And they said, Hey, actually this isn't working. We actually need to know the people. We need somebody in the neighborhood. Um, we need, we need to know what's going on. So that's sort of at the place that I came in. And when I came in, I had thought that all the deconstruction had been done. I thought all the wounds had been healed. I thought that everyone was ready to move on. Let's create 
the church that God is calling us to be. Um, and what I discovered was even though the people who had been here before and had selflessly um, laid down their power and position, uh, they still had a lot of hurt and a lot of wounds and a lot of, uh, a lot of hopes and dreams that hadn't been met um, and needs that hadn't been met. And so um, the, the first year sort of became a process of learning to listen to those things and to take those things seriously. Um, so I think that that's a, a key part of the journey. Yeah. So how many people were part of the community when you arrived? There were probably about 50 people here on a Sunday. Um, and I would say the majority of them were over 60. And I'd say about 20 of them had been a part of the church that this was before the sort of the merger happened. Yeah. Um and so within the first year of sort of getting to know the people and, and, and understanding and learning the context and understanding mm-hmm. what was going on in the community and, and in our congregation, uh, it became clear that I sort of had to take on this strategy of planting a church within a church right. while still spinning the plate of uh, the, the, the old church and what was needed. So there were, you know, they, the the church that had the Northern Virginia church that they had merged with had come in and sort of stripped down everything. So they used to do a pumpkin patch and the church had said no more pumpkin patch and they had done a women's breakfast and they said no more women's breakfast. And they had Mm -hmm. shut down all of these ministries, which was the right thing to do, but it left a lot of wounds for the people Mm -hmm. who had walked through that journey. Um, And my initial response was just like, get over it. Like, don't you Mm -hmm. see those things didn't work? Like that's why, that's why nobody was coming to church. Um, and so, and so I actually discovered that, uh, we needed to take, I needed to take a little bit more time for them to heal from their wounds and listen to the stories and try to understand, um, what was important to them behind the stories. So the reason the women's breakfast was important had nothing to do with the women's breakfast itself, even though all they kept saying was, we need a women's breakfast. We need a women's breakfast. It was actually about them knowing each other's names, that that was their point of connection and they no longer had a point of connection. And so if I hadn't taken the time to listen to that, that story and understand why, what was, undergirding the -hmm. story and why it was important at the foundation, I, I, I would have missed that what they were really crying out for and longing for was they needed a point of connection. Um, and once I heard that I was able to offer them, Hey, actually this is going to be our, we're going to keep that. We're going to keep that important thing for connection, need for connection. And we're just going to, we're going to do it in a new way. And this is what it's going to look like. Um, and even though those things were already there, they didn't know how to connect those dots of how the old things were connected to the new things. Um, and that reminds, I mean, what you said about exegeting the church, I talked to, uh, people that say, I want to start something in my neighborhood. You know, I talk to them about exegeting the neighborhood as kind of a first step. It's like, have you walked the streets? Have you met your neighbors? Have you, instead of uh, knowing what you think the neighborhood needs, have you gone to the neighborhood to find out what it does right. need and then step in and join God in that stuff? So, right. I mean, the same can be true. And, you know, we're talking about shifting a church culture 
is to very carefully, you may think you know your church, right? But right. you need to you need to kind of re-exegete your culture to make sure that you're not wounding people as you try to shift them into something new. Right. And I think that that's really important because I think what I see sometimes happen is people come into new contexts, new congregations, and they come in guns blazing saying, I know how to do this better. I know how to do it right. We need to be missional. And that's really great. Like (laughs) That's wonderful. However, you aren't just, you, you have people that you have to transition and that you have to lead into this new missional movement. Um, It's not about you getting there first. It's about us getting there together. And if you want to get there together, you have to understand why for so long the attractional model was so important to them and why what it was about that model that did give them life and did give them connection and did give them like a sense of spirituality and fed them. Like you have to understand that first before you can shift them to something new. Right. Right. That's a great thought that we need to get there. Actually, we need to get there behind them. Right. If we're, if we're a servant of all kind of like what Jesus says in scripture. So that's a great thought. So, so what were some of the, um, and we've been going through this at Pulpit Rock Church in Colorado Springs as well um, over a few years. What were some of the things that you intentionally started doing mm-hmm. to kind of have that slow shift, but also yeah. kind of curate the history in the past and honor that? So uh, we did this thing that I now endearingly call Broccoli Month. Um, <laughs> and it was... I don't think that's in the Forge curriculum anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) What I call broccoli month. And the reason I call it broccoli month is because it was sort of like, it was the absolute best thing we could have done. Like, Hey, you have to eat your broccoli. You have to eat your vegetables. Uh, But our attendance like plummeted. And so. Because no one likes broccoli, right? Nobody really. (laughs) Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted to come. Like it was, it was painful, but it was the absolute right thing to do. So. Um, and that's one of the things that you have to understand is that you, and, and I think Brian Harrison, he talks a lot about this, that, that if you're going to make this shift, you have got to let go of some of the success, um, uh, success, uh, benchmarks or, yeah, or the metrics. Yeah. 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 The metrics, you have to yeah. let those go because like you will see kingdom growth. You will, you absolutely will, but you will first go through a die and plummet sort of death. Like (laughs) you just, you just will. And, and, and that's what I, I think that that's the, you know, that's part of, it's a small, very small part of the whole, like pick up your cross and follow me sort of thing. Like this is not going to be up and to the right, but, um, uh, so anyways, we did this broccoli month. So what we did was on a Sunday morning, um, I told the congregation that we were going to take some time to share some stories with each other. And that when they came in the next week, the chairs would look different. And that was enough to just totally oh, throw yeah. that the chairs were going to be different. So, I mean, we had people that sat in the same exact chair every <laughs> single week. And so then I moved the cheese and shifted their chairs. And this was like the right. craziest thing ever. So we had them sit in circles around like a little coffee table we set up and, and we, um, forced them to sit by, we did a couple different things each week. Like one week it was sit by zip code. 
one week it was like sit by preference. If you like Milky Way over Snickers, if you like cats over dogs, like oh, things wow. like that. So, yeah. so we were trying to get people to sit with not the same people that they always sat with. Um, and then I would give sort of a short 10 minute, um, sort of teaching. I think some of them, I think they were pretty much based on, um, uh, the, the Exodus story. So talking about Israel walking into a new space and actually, um, all of this stuff I stole from a book called, uh, wait, I pulled it up so that I could reference it, but it's by Mark Branson. It's called hopes, memories, and conversations. Mm -hmm. And he outlines this process called appreciative inquiry. Memories, hopes, and conversation, and he outlines this process called appreciative inquiry. So I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't make any of this up. I just stole it from him because he's a genius. Yeah. Um, so, anyways, we sat and, and I talked about how um, as the people of Israel left Egypt and they went into the promised land, the thing they had to continue to hold on to was the stories of the past of what God had done, and they retold those stories like over and over and over again because they didn't want to forget what God had done, but they were moving to a new place. And so what does it look like to be a people who continuously tell the stories of the past as we walk to a new space? And this was really important for me to swallow too, because I think that, um, oh, at the, at the church I was in Phoenix, uh, there was a guy who was like a legend that had my job before I did. And people would tell stories about this guy all the time. And every time I heard his name, I'd get pissed off because I was <laughs> like, I was like, I don't want to hear one more thing about how he was amazing and everything he touched was gold. Like, yeah. I don't want to hear it anymore because I'm not him and we need to move on. Like that was right. my attitude at that first church. Um, at this one, I, God did a work in me and he was yeah. like, no, no, no. The things that I have done in the past are important. You can't right. just blow those things up. We pay attention to them. We hold tight to them as we move forward into the new spaces that God is calling us. And so essentially in their little circles, um, I, I, you know, had a couple questions of like, of, of what was, what are the, what are the things that were most important about this place, about your development, about the ways that you have connected here. And so we just began to tell stories. Um, and so for four weeks we gathered together and there were sort of new stories that we told. Um, and as we gathered those stories together, I began to look for themes um, in those stories to try to articulate what is the most important thing about our church, um, what has been the most important thing about our church, and sort of draw out those stories. And then the next week they came back and I would share like, hey, there seems to be five themes. Here's the five themes. How can we continue to take those five themes and move forward and have those continue to be important? Um, and so that was a really critical conversation for them to see that I was listening to the stories. I heard the stories. I knew the stories. I didn't want to blow up the stories. We were moving forward with those um, and right. valuing the things that were important. So I think that that was a lot about trust and a lot about reframing for the people. Um, so that was one of the things that was uh, really an important part of, yeah. And, and, and broccoli month, like it, Attendance plummeted, but those who stayed, they sort of became the core foundational people right. that sort of set the tone moving forward. Right. And in change theory, you would say they're early adopters a little they were bit. The early because adopters. right. So you've 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 actually haven't lost anything. You've actually gained right. some foundational things, which are some early adopters that'll help kind of get to that tipping point and move move the culture forward. Did you and when so, we set the chairs back, like yeah. the other people, they came back. 
they weren't gone forever. <laughs> did they take their same chairs back? Yes, they did. Yeah. They just they were like, tell me when you're done with this thing and then I'll come back. And like, yeah. you know, and they are the, they are the late adopters. They're the ones that are going to drag. Um, and they won't believe until they see, but I had to figure out who were, who was my church plant within the plant. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. And, and you don't know the conversations that were happening at Panera or wherever after church, where the early adopters were actually um, casting vision for you, you know, yeah. that had, that had been through that whole process. So that's a, that's a great um, yeah. That's a great reminder. We one of the things that we did is we started intentionally sprinkling words into the things we did from the stage. So, mm -hmm. uh, Pulpit Rocks, a little bit larger church, you know, probably a thousand with kids, and um, they had been doing some missional things. But how were we going to intentionally move into the language that we wanted to use, which is a lot of the forged language, and so. Now we can stand up there and we can say, we can do a benediction and we can tell everyone that they're a sent person mm -hmm. and they understand what that means. Right? right. But, you know, John 20, 21 is one of those verses that doesn't get as much attention on a Sunday morning. Right. Because that's a verse for quote unquote missionaries. And uh, so what were, what are the things like that that you did where you started sprinkling things into Sundays oh, yeah. or Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, so one of the things that we did was, uh, in addition to broccoli month after that whole thing was, uh, I started to be intentional about creating space for our congregation to connect with one another. Cause even though we were small and everyone would say, we're such a little family, like it's so great. They knew nothing about each other. Like they really didn't actually know anything about each other, even though we were small. And so we started to create opportunities for sort of congregational formation. So I think the, there's a mistake in that when you want your people to be sent, you will only do activities and things that are sending missional activities, hmm. which which yes, you need to do those and you don't wait to start doing those because you have to start sprinkling those things in at, at the beginning. Um, but I also recognize the importance for our people to know each other so they could go together. And so we actually did like, we did potlucks. We just did shared meals. We had a summer where we just did potlucks um, every other week. Um, and after service, people stayed and they stayed and stayed and stayed. Mm, and yeah. they really did want to connect with one another. So we started to create some opportunities for connection, um, which honestly, three and a half years later, we're still trying to grow our church in their intentional connections with one another. And it's beginning to, there, there's beginning to be a culture that's developing with that, that it is not a quick fix like, hey, for a summer, we had some potlucks and that was great. But the potlucks were like a great, a great start. And it's so funny because I like, I think potlucks is like the small church backwoods thing to do. And yet I was like, we just got to do some potlucks. Like, man, people love food. It's people great, love food. It's a great way to do community, people right? People love food. So, yeah. Um, and I mean, and Jesus had people around the table, you know, I mean, the yeah. table, table is one of those uh, visuals, metaphors, um, that we picked up on here, here at our church. And mm -hmm. um, we actually did a whole series over the summer about the table. Yeah. And now when we talk about table, um, people that are part of the community, they understand what we're talking about. You know, it's a place of gathering and anyone's welcome and that kind of thing. And even our, our 
you know, kind of our uh, visitor class where you can kind of find out about the community is called first table. And then if you want to get more involved, it's called second table, you know, so, oh. <laughs> so all of, so what we found a sermon series actually became, um, a metaphor that's part of the fabric of the church. Mm-hmm. Like people caught on to it. So we held on to the word, right. Or held oh, on yeah. to the metaphor, you know? So, so what yeah. would you say um, as far as forge? Cause uh, people are listening to this podcast, um, you know, the forge America missional podcast, how has forge helped, helped you in shaping your community yeah. and, and being, you know, being a leader that helps disciple people into the kingdom to join God in the kingdom. So I think, oh my gosh, there's so much to say. Uh, so many little things, but I'm trying to like sum it up in like a broad sort of thing. But I think the thing that has been the most helpful is um, like, I I think that sometimes we think this idea of being missional is a sermon series or, um, or an event that you have. Um, but it's actually an orientation. It's, it's a way that you approach all of the things. It's, the, it's a way that you see. Um, and so, you know, your earlier question about like, how have you helped, how have you um, sort of drip feeded, drip feed? You've done yeah. a drip feed of like, <laughs> drip feeded. You've done a drip feed of all of the vision casting and all that stuff. Like it, your convincing people or, or showing people or demonstrating to people that they are a part of this mission of God, that they are sent people is not something that you say one time. Um, there was a point where I felt like I was so tired of doing sent sermons, like of talking about being sent and talking about the mission of God. And I remember pulling a group of people together. I felt like I had talked about it every single week and I pulled a group of people together and I was like hey like tell me about our sentness and they were like I don't know and I was like you've been here every Sunday to talk about this and they still hadn't got it and and so I think it's just this reminder that when we're blue in the face Mm -hmm. um, thinking about missional and talking about missional uh, our people are just starting to get it like they're just starting to awaken to the thing that we're talking about and the thing that we're doing which I'm sure Jesus felt that way with the disciples like are you kidding why don't you get this yet like I've been traveling with you for three years you're you're still missing the mark and so I think that the thing that Forge has been so helpful in is stay the course um, right. and just having a continuous tribe of people saying, yeah, you're not done yet. Like you're, and not in a harsh sort of critical way, but like, keep going, keep mm-hmm. going. You're, you're not done yet. Um, this is, this is worthwhile. This is a worthwhile pursuit. And, and I think the other piece of it, if this is an encouragement to anybody is that I you know, I have been a follower of Jesus since, you know, six years old at varying degrees of strength, right? Growing strength. But since taking this role at this church and joining the Forge tribe and and relearning what the call of God is through this lens and through this perspective, my spiritual life has been awakened. Like I, I think of, um, I think of the story at the end of Luke where Jesus is traveling down the road um, uh, to Emmaus. Emmaus, right? With the two Mm -hmm. guys? Yeah. Yeah, He's traveling down the road. And the two guys are like, they don't know that it's Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus. They're, but, but they're talking about Jesus. They, 
had been with Jesus. There's some scholars that think that one of them was probably the husband of one of the women who went to the tomb and, you know, who knows speculation, right. but, but they had known the story of Jesus. They were distraught about the story of Jesus, but they didn't see that Jesus was walking with them. And looking back, I feel like that was me previous mm-hmm. to understanding that I was a sent person, a part of the kingdom of God, not just one particular church working in ministry, um, that I knew of Jesus and I, and I was distraught about this thing that had happened to him and, and all that stuff, but I didn't really understand what had happened, that Jesus had resurrected, that Jesus was present in our everyday lives, that, that there was a calling. And, and I, and I had never had people come up to me and say, who is this God that you pray to? Which now, like, these are conversations that I have on regular basis with not people in my church, but with people in my context, knowing that I am sent to a particular context too. Um, and so I now like have all of these store, these crazy stories that, um, I sort of only thought existed in the Bible, um, but Jesus is walking with me and I hadn't seen him previous to this. So, um, so I think that that's what being a part of Forge Tribe has uh, meant to me in a, hopefully a little bit of a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I really identify with that too, as, as I kind of leaned into Forge and some of the um, reading and stuff I'd done for years and years. And, you know, we opened a, a coffee shop in Colorado Springs so that we could live out kind of a, a intersection with the, the community. That's where the story started happening. You right. know, it was not necessarily inside the church walls, but outside um, yeah. of them. And, and uh, it's amazing some of the things that have happened in just kind of living that out. And you, and you really don't have to go, go around with tracks or proclaim, you know, Jesus or, any of those things, it kind of happens on its own. And uh, that's been one of the amazing things to me yeah. as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Like for me, I, um, I live in a parsonage, so I don't really yeah. have, and it's kind of desolated. So I don't really have neighbors and yeah. I work in church. And so we, me and my husband, we chose our kids' school as sort of our context, particularly yeah. our kids' uh, classes. And the stories and the relationships that have been built from that and the conversations that have come from that, um, those are the places. Like, those are the places. And then I get to come back to church and say, guys, God's moving in this way. Like, this really cool thing happened. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that's a really important uh, point um, that you're making, which is, if you're, a, if you're a pastor or a leader of a church or an organization and you're thinking, okay, I want, I want my church to be more incarnational. I want it to do more for my neighborhood, more for my right. city. You can't just talk about it from the stage, right? You, right. You, you have to answer the question personally, to whom have I been sent? And so obviously you've been sent to your parishioners, your congregation to help disciple them and lead them. But as you and your husband did it's like we're going to be sent to our kids' school, and right. so it, it's important to pick a place right that's outside of your what you're paid to do and right. be sent as a as a Christ follower in that. So la- last thing, um, you know, we we do church partnerships at Forge, as you know, and help other churches kind of uh, walk alongside them to do these kinds of shifts, so they don't just go in there and blow blow things up. But we kind of have a healthy yep. shift to a missional yeah. paradigm, right? Um, and you're involved in that as well. I mean, in 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 your um, leading as a hub um, 
you are doing that and will be doing that. Um, how have your, how has your leadership in the church, how did you kind of shift them? Because one of the things that we say is it's really good to start at the top and kind of work your way down. Because if you, if you just walk in as a pastor and just try to do it, it's going to seem like another program. Um, I don't know if you have an elder board or how, how you guys are governed, but um, did you walk the leadership intentionally through this before you took it to the church? So I'm a bit of an anomaly in okay. that we have, so the way that, we, yeah, the way that our church works is that church that we, mer that the church merged with previously, um, and sort of revitalized the church, we are still connected to them as a tax ID number. So okay. we're kind of the same. And yet the way that it's set up is that we have complete autonomy to make the ministerial decisions that we need to make, the budgetary decisions and all of those sorts of things. Um, and so I have an advisory council that is partly on the legal advisory council of that other church gotcha. and then partly members from here and then some outside pastoral team. And so the, the only person that I really had that, um, needed, needed to convince if you even want to call it that right. was the senior pastor at that church that we are the same tax entity to. And, and he, you know, he is just a gift from God seriously, because he was willing to say, he, he trusted in the calling that I had received from God enough to say, if this is where God's calling you, this is where you need to go. And, and I don't think that that is a lot of people's experience. I, I don't mm -hmm. know that that is that. And it's funny because that larger church, they are very much an attractional model church still. And yet at the same time, like are trying to figure out what does it mean to have missional pieces and to be engaged yeah. in the community, but still primarily understanding their role as people need to come to us in order to, yeah. Yeah. come to service and that sort of thing. And so, um, and so we've had lots of conversations about what is the role of attractional versus missional. And I would say that that those conversations have been very healthy for me because I think that in the beginning of this journey, I was willing to throw out Sunday mornings and dismiss our main gathering time altogether and just kind of say, well, it's really just, it, we're more about missional. So Sunday mornings don't really matter. And I think that that was an unhealthy approach to what the gathering time can offer and what that mm -hmm. can be. So missional doesn't mean there's no time and no purpose in gathering together. Um, right. And so in engaging in some of the conversations with uh, my senior pastor, my direct report, uh, who is in an attractional church has helped me understand to a better degree, like, well, what is the purpose of Sunday morning? Sundays is, is this opportunity. F I mean, there really has to be a connection point. Sure. Um, where we all gather together and this is our opportunity. And so I think a little bit of the difference is that he's still in a traditional attractional church model. Like he is still thinking we need to make sure that we engage the, um, the, the, the new people that this is a point where somebody right. may stumble right. in and that may happen here at our church. I don't really think that that often happens. Um, our target audience is really to fuel the people who are then being sent out. So I think that that's just a little bit of a shift, um, um, in that, but your question was about convincing the leadership. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah. Convincing's, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and I think, and word, I think with our, you know, again, we were such a small church and didn't mm -hmm. have much hierarchical leadership yet here. Yeah. That actually, for us, what has happened is as people have caught vision for this, 
they've become the leaders. So it's been a little bit of a different shift. Um, And then there are people who like our older generations who've been at this church for before we merged. Um, I don't expect that they will get there. I, I don't know that they will. And so for them, it is, um, it is loving them where they're at and, and listening to their needs and meeting their needs. And, um, and in some really morbid way, making sure they have a really good funeral when they pass on. <laughs> I know that that sounds so ridiculous, but, yeah. but that to some degree what it is. So yeah. No, maybe you should edit that out. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> we, we probably won't Beth. So if someone's thinking it. But I, I mean, I totally feel you. I mean, we took our elder board and staff uh, through all the Forge curriculum, you know, at a really fast pace, but, mm-hmm. you know, kind of onboarded everyone and that provided some framework for us to then start kind of sprinkling it into the, into the community. And now we do like intentional discipleship paths in the church you know, and use Forge uh, to do that. And we've seen some really good success from that. But it's it's like you said, it's slow going. I mean, it is. this isn't like a quick, quick church yeah. growth program or something like that. It is really building fabric, missional fabric into your church culture, you know? Yeah. And in our first year of the hub, we took all the staff members that were a part of our staff through the hub. That was a requirement like, hey, you have to do this residency program. Um, and this past year, we had our uh, interns do the residency program. And so I think that that's kind of a little bit of how it is. But we've also um, begin to see, I've begun to see that not everybody is ready for the full residency even if they are ready to step into leadership roles. And so we're actually in a process as a church of trying to figure out some bite-sized pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so like Michael Frost Bell's uh, sort of the yeah. five missional, um, missional living. Uh, yeah. From kind Surprise of created, the World. Yeah, yeah, yeah the book Surprise the World. A bite-sized chunk of that, and we've created yeah. a bite-sized chunk of a couple different pieces of the Forge Hub ideas in yeah. order for our congregation to sort of slowly be transformed and have those sort of dripped over them. Yeah. Cool. Well, a couple questions real quick. Um, one, if, if this has piqued someone's interest, you know, a pastor or a leader or someone, uh, what is, what's one book that you would kind of send them to as a um, kind of an introduction to the missional conversation and get them down the road a little bit? I know there's a lot of good ones, but oh my gosh, yeah. One for the missional conversation of trans, like of of just the missional idea or changing, shifting culture in your church. Well, give me two books, one in for me. Okay, so I really so Mark Branson. I would say he's not a he's not necessarily a Forge guy, but yeah. uh, Mark That's Branson's right. book. Um, we love everyone. We're trying to shift culture. Mark Branson's book, Memories, Hopes, and Conversations, Impressive okay. Inquiry, Missional Engagement, and Congregational Change. Okay. Um, that one was really good. He's got another one, too, called like Church Leadership and Memories or something. Culture, Church, and Leadership. That's also a good one. But the Memories, Hopes, and Conversation has the cultural shift piece. Um, so that's a really good one. And then about like just the missional conversation, there are so many. The one that... The one for me, though, that was probably my first exposure to start talking about these things um, was probably a book by Tim Morey. Morey? 
I don't actually know how to say his name, Moray. Um, and it was called Embodying Our Faith. And it was a really easy read. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it just talked a little bit about how, like, the reason people are turning away from the church is because we're giving them a faith that's not embodied and we're right. not really living about. So I don't know if that's the best. That's just the one that was yeah. my first. No, that's great. So, and the other word for that would be incarnational, right? I mean, yes. we don't incarnate yeah. our faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man. And oh my gosh, I have to tell you, Roland, yeah. yesterday I was talking with a congregant and she used the word incarnational. Oh, and I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh. I've won. Like I've, I know. I've won. <laughs> I know. Well, and, and I'm not the lead pastor here at Pulpit Rock. I, I'm the missional culture guy. Um, yeah. But I remember the Sunday, and I also lead worship uh, occasionally. And I remember there was a Sunday I walked off the stage because I was yeah. leading worship. I was walking, walking off the stage, and our lead pastor got up to teach. And we had been going through all the forge stuff and I was about a year, kind of a year into this. And I remember him saying the word sent and I almost like dropped it. I turned around and looked and it was like (laughs) such a huge win, you know, that we were starting to make that, um, starting to make that shift. Well, hey, last question. Um, Some people may just want to get in touch with you and just kind of uh, talk talk and be part of the freaks like me club and you know like what's your experience with the tribe and what are some of the things you're doing and and i know that you're an open person and willing to talk to others how can they get in touch with you if they would like to talk to you um they can email me at beth wolf two f's no e uh beth wolf at clarksburgchurch.com and if you spell wolf wrong you can just find our church at clarksburgchurch.com and uh and then from there you can get contact information from me yeah, well, that's cool. Well, hey, I I really really appreciate you spending some time and just kind of talking about the journey and that you're on and have made uh, yeah. with Clarksburg. And we uh, we as a tribe at Forge are just uh, so excited that you're part of us now. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's so good, it's good to be here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Beth, and we will All talk right. to you soon. Thanks so much, Roland. Bye. Hey, well, great interview and uh, discussion with Beth Wolf. And uh, Beth gave you her contact info. And she, I know she would love to talk to you more if you uh, would be interested in talking to a pastor who's actually doing this and, and kind of working uh, boots on the ground in um, bringing some missional culture and presence uh, to her community of faith. So thank you, Beth, for joining us. And we thank you for joining us on the Forge American Missional Podcast Weekly. Um, We love having the discussion with you. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, The podcast is on our website at www.forgeamerica.com. And there is a podcast page under the resources link. And uh, we would love to have any comments from you. We'd love for you to go to iTunes and uh, give us a rating because that helps everyone find us and uh, join the conversation. And so we hope that this is um, blessing your ministry and uh, giving you some things to help further your missional practice. Um, And so until next week, I will see you guys in uh, Orlando, I guess. And we'll start eating tacos and all kinds of stuff, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm nice. looking forward to it. Okay. We're not giving up tacos for Lent, for right. No, no, okay. no, no you got to have tacos. Okay. Yeah. So we'll do tacos. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll see you guys next week. See ya. Hey, stay relevant. <laughs>